0: This is ContraZoom, where we go back and forth about film. I'm your host, Dakota Arsenault, and today's episode is presented by Aesthetic Magazine. We are continuing our countdown of the best picture winners going decade by decade and ranking them of how we see fit. There are two people that watch all 10 movies and then we rank them and figure out what is the average between the two of us. So joining me today is Stephanie Fryer. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great. Thanks for having me.
0: This was actually the first decade where I've seen most of the movies already. I'd seen nine of the ten of them. And going forward, I've basically seen all of them. Uh, so this was the first time where I'm, I've am i done most of my homework beforehand. And they're basically rewatches. Uh, for you, I believe that was the same. You had seen, I think, a good chunk of them as well. Yeah, I'd
1: seen all- nine of the ten also. But it's yeah. interesting is that we had both... Not seen one movie, but not the same movie.
0: Mm -hmm. So we are now in the eighth decade of the Oscars. We are counting down uh, movies from 1998 to 2007. This is going to be a two-part episode. We're going to go through the bottom five. This episode and the top five next episode, along with our awards that we are going to give out, as we do every time we do one of these. And we're going to get right into this. The first movie that comes in number 10 is Crash from 2004, directed by Paul Haggis. It's the sense of touch. Any real city, you, you walk, you know? You brush past people, people bump into you. In LA, nobody touches you. We're always behind this metal and glass. Uh, the IMDb description is, Los Angeles citizens with vastly separate lives collide in interweaving stories of race, loss, and redemption. This is a movie that I think more people hate on it. And I'm not saying that it's undeserved, but this this movie is more notorious than it is regarded for the fact that it is a best picture winner. One, because it beat out Brokeback Mountain despite Ang Lee winning Best Director. And two, revisits, usually after you watch it the first time, it gets a lot worse as it goes on. Um so I guess the, the question is does it deserve the hate that it gets?
1: I think there's a lot of things that go wrong for Crash, in particular for me, it was really just like script and acting. There was a lot of great um it was a great cast, however I just feel like a lot of them just overacted and it just seemed way over dramatic than it needed to be and they just wanted it to be so serious that it came across as kind of silly. And then uh this just the the writing also. I mean I think that the idea and the story Behind it is really interesting and and could have been really good and great, but just the way that some storylines ended or uh, started and ended like the the path from A to B seemed kind of a little weird and short-sighted and not really fully thought through.
0: Yeah, it's it's very it's very odd, you know. I don't know if this is supposed to be a product of its time. Sometimes you watch comedy movies or even dramas from the last 15, 20 years that don't seem like they're that old and, and you listen to them and you kind of cringe a little bit. But like right from the get-go, the the racism in this movie, which obviously this is what it's about, but it just feels so forced and it's like what are the, the laziest stereotypes racial slurs that you can come up with and sort of throw at people and that's basically what the characters backgrounds are it's very odd this is supposed to take place uh, basically post 9-11 u.s uh obviously this came out three years after 9-11 but like it just makes me feel especially with the tone towards uh people who are arabic brown in general this sort of racism, important, which I know was, was very prevalent, but like three years later, was it that fervent? Was it that crazy? Was it that over the top? I don't really know. And And so that maybe I'm just looking back at 20 years of history and knowledge and being like, wow, people were wild back then.
1: <laughs> I think that, you know, three years isn't really that long after 9-11 happened. And considering this takes place in the States and we're from Canada, maybe we didn't feel it as much as they did. So it very possibly could have been so high there, but um, that's not really where I took issue. It's just – it was just some of the insane characters.
0: Yeah, the, you know, you can go through a few of them. The the ludicrous character is basically what I look at is basically an idea of uh, a white man's idea of faux wokeness from a black character. Uh, there's obviously stereotypes of of what black wokeness can be like, and it just seems like that's what the ludicrous character is, and it's it's very frustrating and annoying because he doesn't really seem to make a point. He's just making. Statements that are obvious there to anger people and frustrate people with is like, oh, you're a smart guy, but you're saying these ridiculous things. And, and that's kind of annoying where it, it very clearly coming from a white person's perspective, being forced onto a black man. And so I didn't really like that. Um, and then and then there's also different people like Matt Dillon, who, you know, because he was polite and uh, and. and since Sandy Newton, the second time he sees her when he's trying to rescue her, suddenly he sort of absolves himself of all of his transgressions and anger issues. And he's a good guy. Like these people switch from being terrible racist people to suddenly they're confronted and all of a sudden they're better people. And that doesn't make sense.
1: Yeah. His was actually the one that I could believe the most. Mm-hmm. It was Sandra Bullock's that, w- that really got me or she was just a horrible person and uh, had a really bad bad attitude and all it took was for her to fall down the stairs and have nobody answer her calls back to realize that she was this horrible person and then all of a sudden she was best friends with her maid it seemed kind of silly
0: i think it might be an issue of the fact that there are so many characters and they try so hard to give so much backstory to them all that Unless this was like a five-hour movie or a mini series or something mm. like that, you can't resolve it all quickly. So it basically has to come down to a single moment where they realize, "Oh my god, I've been a terrible person my entire life. I'm going to rethink everything I've ever done." When in reality, that's not how people think. You know, they might have a situation where it might help lead them to reflection, but it's not going to be uh, a 180-degree turn right from when right. it happens.
1: Yeah, yeah. It seems like a very short time period for all of this to happen from everyone to go from you know, their worst self to their best self.
0: And it seems like there's only 20 people in all of LA. The fact that everyone is (laughs) so connected in, you know, one of the most populous cities in the world. I guess not really. There's some bigger cities in Asia and things like that. But like one one of the biggest cities in the US, obviously. And there's only 20 people and they all somehow know each other. Or, you know, the locksmith works for this one shop who also works for the rich DA who... Has their car stolen by these people? Like, I understand the idea of interconnected weaving stories, but when you try to have it so big yet so intimate at the same time, it just really doesn't work out.
1: Yeah, I do like the idea of it being more of a miniseries than a movie.
0: It did eventually get, movie, get made into a TV oh, show it? with Dennis Hopper in it. And oh. it lasted, I think, a season or something. <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah.
1: <laughs> what, one shout out I have to say, though, is Michael Peña. Always great. Always my favorite. Will always be in his corner Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. i understand um (laughs) i realized at the end of this movie that this is paul haggis's attempt at recreating magnolia it's you know the story of all these different people whose lives are interconnected and at the end there is a musical montage where they suddenly all realize what their mistakes were this is exactly magnolia and as soon as i clued into that it made me hate this movie even more (laughs) (laughs) all right let's move on
1: Alright, next on our list we have Million Dollar Baby. Mr. Dunn. I owe you money. No, sir. I know your mama? Thought you might be interested in training me. I
0: don't train girls.
1: People see me fat, Sam. I'm pretty tough.
0: Girly, tough ain't enough.
1: A determined woman works with a hardened boxer boxing trainer to become a professional. I remember when I first watched this movie, I remember it being so sad and so devastating. And being really affected by it. And then rewatching it this time, it didn't seem to have that same kind of emotional connection for me. I don't know if it's because I knew, you know, the twist that was coming or just how everything works out. It just didn't seem as emotional to me. But it was still sad, but didn't connect with me as much the second watch.
0: For me, I think the more Clint Eastwood movies I see, the more I sort of understand him as a director. And his way of shooting is do it as fast as possible. Don't do second takes. You know, trust that the actors know what they're doing and then just move on. And when you revisit his movies, you realize that he either gets something really magical or he clearly has just rushed through things. And I think going back and and revisiting this movie, this is one where it it seems a little bit rushed. I believe it was like 15, 20 days uh, shot quicker than what it was scheduled to be. So it's very interesting. I think the film relies way too heavily on Morgan Freeman's narration. Mm. Watching it this time, I'm like, I didn't realize that literally he narrates the entire movie. and, And... People fall on different ends of the spectrum of whether they like narration in movies or not, How depending on how it's employed, things like that. Uh, for this, it isn't like he's saying things that characters don't know or he's approaching things from a different perspective. He's basically just filling in the gaps. Instead of showing us, they're just telling us, which is, you know, a big uh, sin in movie making is show, don't tell. And the fact that we get the narration basically through the entire first half of the movie every scene, every character introduction, every time they go to a new location, it's it's Freeman's character narrating what's going on. And it really detracts from what's, what is happening for me.
1: Yeah. At the beginning, it was really jarring. And I, I don't remember even the narration from the first time I watched it, but rewatching it, it was something that really bugged me. And there was like that moment kind of three quarters of the way through where it seemed to stop and there wasn't as much Anymore, And I was like, well, that was kind of stupid to have it. So the only redeeming quality that it had was at the end when the Morgan Freeman's narration came back. And then you realize, oh, it's, it's him narrating or writing a letter to uh, Clint Eastwood's daughter, a strange daughter, explaining what a great man he was. But that doesn't really explain why he had to introduce all these other characters and all these other storylines that were going on during the events that took place during the movie.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's something that, that could have been simplified a bit more um, where maybe he narrates bits, but then we see the expanded action of what's really right. happening and everything else. Because while the people in the story know what's happening, it's doubtful that he's writing all of this stuff. So it's, it's odd that they they decide to do it that yeah. way. Yeah, uh, And I also found that as far as production goes, it was a little shoddy at times. I found sometimes the punches, the sound effects of the punches didn't actually match up with the fight sequences, uh, which was a little bit frustrating. Uh, sometimes you could tell that punches weren't actually connecting the way that they shot it. Um, and then also, knowing that—I'm I'm, going to spoil something a little bit, the, the major twist in the movie. If you haven't seen it yet, I'm sorry. The fall where Hilary Swank falls in the ring and hits her neck on the stool It was shot really terribly, you know, you get this weird slow motion shot of her starting to fall and then all of a sudden uh, she is shown basically just on top of the stool, she doesn't move, she doesn't bounce, nothing like that, it's really bad where it's just basically all supposed to be done with sound effects. And and it really loses the impact of this once you've seen it before, because I knew when that fight sequence was coming, that the fall was going to happen and what happens afterwards. And then seeing it all play out that way, I was pretty disappointed that there was no real impact felt there. Uh, And I think that might have been an issue of Clint rushing through shooting.
1: Yeah, potentially. Um, It didn't bother me as much as it bothered you. I hadn't even really noticed it. Um, I do think that Hillary Swank was really great in it, and for some reason, I have this weird soft spot for Clint Eastwood as an actor, I don't even know why, mm-hmm. just, like, crotchety old men being sad, I don't know, something about it, but he's definitely not the strongest actor, I'm gonna say that, in his, in these films, but I really appreciated, um, the, like, Humbled, hardworking, sweet Hilary Swank character, what she brought to it.
0: Yes, I will I will give props to Hillary Swank. I thought she was terrific. She she brought a lot to it. And in fact I think her chemistry with Clint Eastwood is actually really strong and one of the highlights of the movie. It basically, anytime he was in a scene that she wasn't in or they weren't personally interacting, that's where his performance sort of fell flat for me. Yeah, but in I the would totally agree. Directly with the two of them, where it's sort of this surrogate father daughter relationship, it really worked. Yeah. And sort of once again, Clint Eastwood always perplexes me where I find his movies take these interesting political slants that he himself doesn't hold. And I, I've always, you know, found it a little bit curious considering how outspokenly conservative he is and then his movies like this one which delves into both uh feminism and euthanasia which are two subjects that the conservative movement doesn't really have a lot of time for he kind of takes a lot of care and detail in, in putting some thought into this and he routinely chooses these projects where it basically seems to counter whatever his own beliefs are so i have a i have this weird sort of respect for him where i don't really know who he is, despite the fact that I do know who right. he is. Yeah, And sometimes he like does it a little ham-fistedly, where I think he sort of challenges himself to think from someone else's perspective, which is not a trait you usually think of of someone like him but he does a pretty decent job with this as far as exploring these ideas of of both uh what does it mean to be feminine and masculine and also euthanasia itself so kudos to him for that
1: yeah he is a weird guy
0: uh i have to ask you what did you think of the danger storyline
1: it seemed a little random and misplaced i'm not sure why it was there and i guess it was just so that in the end we can see that Oh, you know, there was this horrible event that took place, but here's another hopeful story that is going to go on, even when the credits, once the credits have rolled.
0: Yeah, I remember when I first watched it, seeing Jay Baruchel in this movie, I was like, "Oh, that's awesome, Canadian kid! I love him from Popular Mechanics," um, <laughs> and w- was really into it and, and felt really bad for him. But now, rewatching, it basically felt just like forced pity. Mm. Where he didn't, his character didn't really bring much to the story until the very end when it showed that Morgan Freeman can still throw a a mean left hook. Mm -hmm. Um, But I don't know. Like it, it didn't really bring anything to the table, and I didn't pity him the way that they clearly wanted me to pity him.
1: Yeah, I think if there was some sort of subplot where, you know, she was training with him or they became kind of buddies and there was a reason why he was around it was just kind of like this weird oh and there's some other jerks in the ring here too
0: mm-hmm. all right moving on to number eight is a beautiful mind from 2001 directed by ron howard
1: welcome to princeton who among you will be the next einstein fighting the truly original idea and it's the only way i will ever distinguish myself and it's the only way i will ever matter he saw the world Where is nash out there for his original idea in ways that no one could imagine this flies in the face of 150 years of theory
0: Uh, the plot is after john nash a brilliant but asocial mathematician accepts secret work in cryptography his life takes a turn for the nightmarish This was the only movie of the 10 that you had not seen, Mm -hmm. uh, and you didn't know the twist going into it at all. So it was very interesting for me being able to watch this movie and know exactly what was happening. I, I probably haven't seen this movie in 15 years, so I didn't remember any of the details, but I know what the twist was. Being able from the very first scene to start sort of jotting down notes and ideas about... This, uh, the schizophrenia that he suffers from, and how who is real and not real in his life. And then I turned to you at the end of the movie and I asked you, uh, when did you notice? And you basically weren't, you didn't clue in until almost the reveal.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's funny because I knew that there was a twist. However, I thought I had known what the twist was. So I was waiting for this one thing to happen which made me kind of let my guard down with whatever was coming at me, too. So I wasn't like, wait a minute, I have to solve this, because I thought I had already kn- like known what was going to happen. But even a- aside from that, when things were going one certain way and it's leading you to kind of question what's going on, I wanted to believe his character so much that I refused to believe the twist a mm-hmm. little bit at- until it was like, okay, no, it's... It's, it's for real not actually happening.
0: And, and what you're referring to is you thought that the doctor was in on it and trying to convince other people that he was crazy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: Okay, so that's interesting. Because I'm watching it, and for anyone that has seen Fight Club multiple times, uh, you know that the Edward Norton character is the real person, and Brad Pitt is his figment of his imagination. Uh, and, and in scenes where the two of them are there out in public— only Edward Norton's character interacts with other people. And so I started noticing, you know, right from the very beginning, Paul Bettany not, wasn't in any other scene. And if he was, he was only seen in the background where other people weren't interacting with him. Uh, and then when more and more people start getting introduced, like when he goes to the facility where he supposedly is a secret government workshop, they he goes... Something like, um, oh, I thought this was just an empty warehouse. No, this is for secret government work, when in reality it really was an empty warehouse. And so it's sort of interesting to kind of go back and rewatch it and see where all the tricks sort of take place. I think the problem with this movie is it's directed by two different people, Mm -hmm. Ron and some guy named Howard, um, because... Half of it plays out like this, you know, very familiar mental health drama. And then the other sequences where he's doing his secret government work when he's having his episodes, it's way more stylized and flourished. And it really didn't work. Uh, Lots of camera swirls and crazy lighting and things like that. And and the two of them, it basically was like an action movie and then a drama. And the two of them weren't connected well enough to uh, appreciate what they were trying to do.
1: Maybe you can be seen as like the action, the action parts were because they were like kind of taking place in his mind. He was able to like elaborate and, and um, kind of emphasize certain things that weren't actually happening or could happen in real life. So maybe that's something that uh, Ron Howard was going for. But yeah, it did seem like two different movies playing along side by side.
0: And it felt like, especially the when he was experiencing his episodes, uh, it felt very dated. Mm. We, we both sort of remarked that it felt like a, an early 2000s movie, yeah. maybe like a really good TV movie that would come out now sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's this is a movie that really hasn't aged too well in that regard as far as the technical aspects go. Yeah, I would agree. What did you think of Russell Crowe who normally plays these more brutish characters playing someone that's dealing with much more sensitive issues?
1: Yeah, it was definitely the softer side of Russell Crowe that I've ever seen. Um, and it's not the last, we're going to see it from him in this decade, but, um, you know, I thought it was good at times and I thought it was kind of hammy at other times. It was okay. It wasn't his best performance and, um, yeah, it was just okay for me.
0: Yeah. Uh, and I think that there's some other big issues with it, the, the final act starts way too early and, and drags on once we kind of understand what he needs to do to get his life back together. That, that right. seemed to take forever yeah. and just killed whatever pacing the movie had, um, which is interesting because w- movie that clocks in literally just over two hours, you wouldn't expect that sort of glaring issue to take place, but it really does where you felt like maybe 15, 20 minutes could have been taken off and it would have been a lot more fluid. Um the reveal of his illness does feel earned to me, though, when, when the reveal finally does happen, because I think they do do a good enough job uh, showing both sides where is he or isn't he suffering? Are these people real? Are
1: these people right.
0: really, you know, stealing state secrets or working to take down the Russians or whatever it is? I think that actually does work out really well, especially like in those, those hospital scenes for me.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, I agree. I I really liked Jennifer Connelly in this. I thought she was really great and fantastic. And she played, kind of as a viewer, she was someone I related to and was trying to figure out and decipher, do you trust him? Do you not trust him? Do you believe them over him kind of thing? So she was my like surrogate in the movie.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, And then I think something that bugged me is as John Nash's health worsened and he clearly needs to be committed, it basically... He doesn't and love wins out. Like, I don't know what it is where schizophrenia is a very serious issue where you need to be carefully monitored at times and handle your medication all this sort of stuff. And he basically just decides to willpower overcome it.
1: Yeah, that seemed a little weird. I don't know much about this topic or, you know, how it's handled and if that's a possibility, if that's even something that has happened or can happen. I mean, obviously, this is based on true events. But, yeah, it did seem a little I don't know, hard to believe, I guess.
0: Mm -hmm. I don't know. Let's move on.
1: Okay. So next on our list is Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King.
0: Come, master. Come to Smeal. This is your test. Every path you have trod through wilderness through war.
1: Gandalf and Aragorn lead the world of men against Sauron's army to draw his gaze from Frodo and Sam as they approach Mount Doom with the One Ring. I'm going to preface my comments by stating I am, was a giant Lord of the Rings fan. I had everything, any piece of merchandise that had LOTR on it, I had it. I was a huge Samwise Gamgee fan. Um, and I actually re-watched all three of these films or er, er, middle of the last year, I guess, in the summer. And after revisiting them, not the biggest fan of them anymore, although um, Fellowship of the Rings is, of course, still my favorite. Watching them all, it wasn't exactly, you know, the fantasy that I had remembered from growing up. But watching this third installment, it's still a good uh, fantasy action film. It's a little... Uh, soapy drama for me at times and I wish that it was kind of more serious and less I mean it is serious but (laughs) like more taken seriously than over dramatically and by this point I'm also totally not on Frodo's side and find him very annoying so you know it's not as an enjoyable of a watch for me and I also just don't think that the graphics and the effects hold up as well as other films have i mean i think it's still great and it's an amazing achievement that they had during the time of filming but they they don't sit well with me
0: yeah this is interesting i only watched this one i didn't rewatch the first two i originally was planning on trying to do an entire trilogy rewatch and doing some sort of episode around that being the fact that it's about the the 20th anniversary of the the first one next year, so I I wasn't too sure what was gonna happen. If I was gonna do all three or just the one, I ended up doing just the one. I had to do a little bit of homework beforehand by checking out what happened in the first two just to sort of be caught up to speed because I haven't seen Return of the King since it came out. It's interesting how excited I was back then. I actually saw this Uh, midnight on the Thursday that I came out and went with my parents to go watch it. It was a great experience, really enjoyed it. But yeah, it's really interesting seeing it now. The the natural shots of the landscape still are are stunning and beautiful, but any time there's something superimposed, it shows how poorly the CGI has aged. Uh, Some sequences look great, some really don't. You get what looks like very flat background of people just walking in front of them. And and it's very odd at times. It's, it's something that like anytime, anything with CGI, when it comes out and it's top of the line, it basically only looks good for a year or two before the medium has advanced so far that it is now out of date. Hmm. And, and this is one that suffers despite the fact that everything that Peter Jackson and his team at Veda did they completely push forward everything. They're the world leaders in, in CGI. And already this looks like what some university student would do with no budget on their laptop for a final project at times.
1: Yeah, I just I didn't think it was held up at all.
0: Yeah. Um, the the Minas Trinith uh, set and scenes I, I thought did look spectacular, though mm-hmm. they did a good job with that. I believe that's because... A lot of the aerial shots of that were of a miniature. Yeah. So that's probably why it looked as good as it did. And it wasn't trying to focus on the people that live in this town, city, whatever it is. Um, but anytime that you try to focus on on both a location and the people involved, that's where it really, I think, uh, looked a little worse for wear. Yeah. Um, but the orcs with the practical effects look terrific.
1: Yeah. I, for me... Oh. Practical effects always beat out, like, uh, visual effects, I guess. Yeah, yeah.
0: And for for you being Jurassic Park, being your favorite movie, that's mm. a movie that has clearly stood up to time with the effects. And this is the exact same thing. Anything that is practical, practical effects looks fantastic. The orcs with their makeup and the prosthetics... It all looks great.
1: Yeah, fantastic.
0: Gollum even looks a little aged now yeah. where clearly he's not there. Whereas I remember when I first watched I was like, oh, my yeah. God, I can't believe that <laughs> they're doing this with one other guy. Like, who is this Andy Circus guy? Yeah. And now it just looks like it's an awkward cartoon insert like yeah. you'd expect from, like, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Yeah, it
1: does. It does <laughs> feel a little weird for sure.
0: Um, I kept laughing, though, because – Every, there's this whole section of Mary the Hobbit who is hanging out with uh, Aowen, and he gets suited up in his armor, and he just looks like he's mommy's little boy that's going up to, to work with her. He's <laughs> so adorable, but I kept laughing because it's like this little kid with a little sword, all dressed up uh, in the middle of war.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think it's funny because like, him and Pippin are are so like one and the same throughout the entire film until this third movie Or sorry, throughout the entire trilogy until this third movie where their their paths end up splitting and Pippin takes a much more solemn, uh, sad uh, storyline. And then Mary's is kind of more like, you know, that gung-ho kid who wants to go off to war and be a hero and prove everyone that he's great. And uh, no one's giving him the chance like a a kid, like Mm -hmm. no one would pay attention to a child.
0: Now it's interesting. I remember at the time, most of the acting praise was going to Viggo Mortensen. I believe he was nominated for the first film. I can't remember exactly. But watching this third one, it's Ian McKellen for me that really stood out. That I felt that he grounded the scenes in reality the best. Mm-hmm. He was able to play the movie as if it wasn't fantasy, whereas I think a lot of the other actors play up the fantasy. And so it seems a little cheesy now.
1: Yeah, I think that I think you've nailed it on there head there for me, especially. I think Ian McKellen was great and fantastic in this. And and to your comment, yeah, I I think that's where my issue was, where it's just everyone didn't make me believe that it was their universe.
0: Now, we laughed... Both at the time and now with the multiple endings. Mm -hmm. I actually find that they kind of work. I think, I think the editing is a little off on them, but the way that they kind of close the chapter on each of the characters, I think they do a sufficient job considering how big this world is. And there's so many stories you kind of need to wrap up because it basically is you died or you lived. What happens after you live then? So we need to know what happened to about 20 plus characters. And I think they do a pretty decent job of closing the chapters because they basically go one by one where there's usually one person who it isn't the end of their story and they keep going on a little bit so they're kind of our surrogate of okay here's the end of hobbiton here's the end of what's happening with the elves here's the end of what's happening in other places around middle earth so for me it actually kind of worked despite the fact that maybe it could have been edited slightly better
1: maybe perhaps i the problem with that i have with it was that they weren't closing out all the different you know uh Areas of Middle-earth for me. You know, once the war was over and and Aragorn becomes king and then they they close off that, then you get five different endings in Hobbiton. Mm-hmm. You know, they return back. Fade to black. Now they're at a bar and, you know, everything's different for them but everyone else is acting normal. Fade to black. Now you've got Frodo in, you know, Bag End writing a book and he finishes and Sam comes in. Fade to black. You know, there's just so many, like, different endings for them that I wish they had of figured out a different way and i don't know how because it is such a giant story in a huge world that you have to come to an ending for but it just it just kept going
0: i think this movie this series basically is a museum exhibit you you have to marvel at the The feat that went into this, the fact that they basically filmed for two years nonstop, so that way people weren't aging, the amount of costumes and makeup and special effects and set design and scenic painting and everything like that that actually went into this is utterly stunning and an impressive feat that you just want to give a round of applause to everyone involved, but at the same time... This is very of its time and isn't really moving forward with the rest of it. You can clearly see how it is inspiring other sorts of, you know, uh, castle type of stories, whether it's the Game of Thrones or other or other offshoots like that, where this sort of scope and scale and epicness is really the blueprint to follow. Unfortunately, it's not the best that could be. So I'm, I'm definitely curious to see what amazon is going to do since they plan on making a tv show Mm -hmm. how is it going to change is it going to be more story focused is it going to be more special effects and battle focused i don't really know
1: Hmm. i think it'd be cool if it was more battle focused those Mm -hmm. were the best parts of all three of these films for the battles
0: it would it is uh the only part of the the final battle that i really didn't like was the undead army
1: Mm. oh yeah 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 for sure, <laughs> Which is interesting
0: because I was reading the trivia of the movie and that is the part that Peter Jackson liked the least and he didn't want to include it, but he was worried about uh, hardcore fans of the books calling him out and completely ignoring what is essentially a large section. He thought it didn't belong with the rest of the world and the way it's included, it does sort of seem like it's slapped together a little bit.
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll rephrase and say all like hand-to-hand combat Mm. you know because even the um i forget what they're called but those big elephants Mm -hmm. at the end look kind of phony especially when legolas is like surfing off the the trunk of one and yeah like climbing up one's leg whatever so definitely just like man to man or man to orc whatever it happens to be
0: the score is amazing still though
1: Mm -hmm. oh definitely holds up i had all three of these cds
0: (laughs) (laughs) I i was very impressed with the music and i and i really enjoyed it and um It's one that I thought aged very nicely. All right, so now we're going to talk about the number six movie, which is going to be the last one that we're gonna talk about. It is American Beauty from 1999, directed by Sam Mendes.
1: We're having everyone write out a job description. That way, management can assess who's valuable and who's expendable. My parents are trying to take an active interest in me. Why can't they just have their own lives? I'm so proud of you. You didn't screw up once. Oh, my God. It says psycho next
0: door. Jane, what if he worships you? I didn't mean to scare you. I'm not obsessing. I'm just curious. Why does he dress like a Bible salesman? Today I quit my job. And then I blackmailed my
1: boss for almost $60,000 past these barriers.
0: A sexually frustrated suburban father has a midlife crisis after becoming infatuated with his daughter's best friend. Now, I think the first thing we need to start with, this is obviously going to be uh, a bit of a hard discussion to have if we're going to be dancing around, you know, the Kevin Spacey allegations and everything we now know about him, which has sort of tainted his entire career. We're going to kind of do our best to more focus on the movie because it's, it's so difficult to, the, the concept of separating art from artists, and I don't really know if... This is the time or place to really try to have that discussion and I don't feel like I'm fully equipped to be able to say what is the appropriate stance to take because I know everyone varies very differently on that. Um, that said, I'm not going to lie and say I was looking forward to re-watching it due to the fact of his involvement in this. Also because American Beauty, by most people, uh, believe that it has aged poorly and is not held up. That said, I actually quite liked it and think it did a a pretty good job of satirizing what it was supposed to be satirizing. I think a lot of people get caught up in the main character's, um, you know, white man problems and sort of use that to cover up everything else that this movie has to say. But I think more than anything, it's, you know, a critique on suburbanism and, you know... I mentioned Fight Club earlier I think it works very well that idea of also talking about consumerism and capitalism and what we want and desire from life is it from what we've been told we should have or is there a possible different way to live your life and I think when you focus more on that and less so on maybe the the whininess of the Lester character I think this movie is quite rich in that regard
1: yeah I think that this you know movie still holds up today in in and could still be remade in today's world. Like, you know, may have more internet, more cell phones, more tech involved. But um, if you look as, aside from all the nineties um, influences in this film, it's still your typical suburban family and could totally tell the story of any suburban family from today. So I also wasn't sure how I felt about watching this or rewatching it, going back into it. But after watching it, like, no, actually, this is this is actually pretty good. And I I ended up enjoying it more than I thought I was going to going back into it.
0: It's interesting. I actually found Lester's midlife crisis a lot more relatable. I know this has kind of been (laughs) something where a lot of people sort of differ on. And when they're a little bit older and they go back and rewatch it, they sort of understand where he's coming from, because at first glance, he seems really whiny. But then things like. His disdain for filling out uh, questions about what he does at his work and how he is important and and all the things that he he brings to the table. I hate when those questions are asked yeah. for me, and, and it's just something I find very relatable. Where it's this idea of corporate culture where bottom line is everything and, and you have to figure out where you fit in this world and if you're not making money, are you worth the money? All that sort of stuff I found very interesting. Um, and, I, and I quite appreciated it. Maybe it's just because I'm now a, a 30-something-year-old man <laughs> uh, and, and, and I'm finding myself to be a little bit more like Lester at times. But um, it was definitely a lot more relatable. So I, I appreciated that, that looking back, maybe the writer Alan Ball was sort of onto something. Uh, I also... This movie was a lot funnier than I remembered it, it to be.
1: It very funny. Yeah. Uh,
0: like, I know it's always been kind of called a black comedy, which sort of usually indicates that it's not sort of laugh-out-loud funny, but I found myself laughing-out-loud funny a lot of times. Yeah. I think a good indication of it was... Um, when Lester says, I want to look good naked, uh, his idea of, of working out, I found that absolutely hilarious yeah. because who hasn't thought that? We're like, yeah. why are you working out? I don't know. I just want to look good naked. Yeah.
1: <laughs> why does anybody work out? Because I want to look good naked. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, I also appreciate Sam Mendes, this being his first movie, he came from a theater background. It's very theatrical at times in the way he stages things, but he also has a real natural hook for how to move the camera and some really nice flourishes i like the sort of slow motion shots where it like repeats things in different in slightly different angles in, in a way that i really like um and then there's a few other beautiful tracking shots that he does so, so sam mendes who's become a, a director I, I quite like uh with his other work like skyfall in 1917 and, and things like that really showed a flair for what was to come for him
1: Yeah, I really appreciated his direction here. Um, And just to talk back about the comedy and also just why I liked this movie the most was probably Annette binning. I thought she was hilarious and great and fantastic and every scene that she was in, she really stole from me.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and I think the two of them really work well off of each other where it seems because we spend most of the time with Lester that he's the one going through the midlife crisis. She's the one going through it as well and trying to understand who she is, what she wants, reconciling uh, her hopes and dreams of her past and who she is as a person moving. Moving forward, uh, and and they're they're very similar in that regard as well, and and I appreciate the care that went into that. Um, the movie can kind of be seen as like white male rage, but also I think it does a, a good job showing middle class complacency, and I think that's the biggest thing is is the complacency. Once you get the house and the nice car, and you have a kid and, and all this sort of stuff does your life and end what? Yeah. yeah like what happens what happens next i think they do a really good job show, sort of showing what would be the extreme lengths of someone going to once they sort of realize they're caught in that rut
1: yeah i agree
0: um i also really like the west bentley character um i think he did a, a terrific job he plays the the boyfriend of jane uh ricky and I think he does, a, he does an interesting job. He's weird, but he's not too weird, and you sort of understand where his weirdness comes from, especially being a product of the environment that he's from. So it has a lot going for it that I really like.
1: Yeah, I think the that everyone, the casting was really well done, and everyone played their character really spectacularly and brought something unique and interesting to each character. So I think that's something that really, uh, that American Beauty has going for it.
0: Now, I know a lot of, People were upset that it ended up winning Best Picture, um, but I was—I'm actually kind of happy with it. I, I'm trying to figure out what else it was nominated up against, but I can't pull it up as quickly. Um, I know. The Matrix was one of them. Oh no, sorry, it wasn't. Green Mile, Sixth Sense, Cider House Rules, and The Insider. Uh, I've only seen I actually haven't seen any of them, so I can't really comment too much about them. You've seen two of them. How do you feel?
1: Um It's so interesting because I feel like they're the three that I have seen being American Beauty, Green Mile, and the Sixth Sense, are all so different and also great in their own ways. I could have seen the Green Mile winning. Um, because of its subject matter and, and the way, you know, the reception was for it. But I think that American Beauty was definitely deserving.
0: Mm-hmm. Maybe it was just a bit of a weaker year in general, but I think they did a, a good job with that. All right. So that was the bottom five movies. Uh, we are going to do a second part where we count down the top five and do the awards that we're handing out. But uh, first, thank you, Stephanie, so much for for being on this episode. Thanks. Uh, I also want to thank Eric and Kevin Smale for their theme music and thank you to Aesthetic Magazine for presenting the show. Make sure you subscribe to the show so that way you get the episodes right away. If you can rate and review us, that'll be awesome. We're on Apple Music, we're on Spotify, Google Play, everything you can think of, every podcast catcher that you have. Uh, also, follow us on social media at ContraZoomPod. Um, that's Facebook, that's Twitter, that's Instagram, or you can. Can send me an email contrazoompod at gmail.com what do you think was the best picture of this decade do you have any complaints about where we're ranking things uh let us know what you think so thank you so much for listening mm-hmm.